You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... Like you, the United States wants this war to end on just terms, on terms we all signed up for, that you cannot seize a nation's territory by force. U.S. President Joe Biden prepares to welcome his Ukrainian counterpart to Washington. Also ahead... We'll check in with the world's most hungover city and we'll have a reflection on the seasonal joys of the Viennese Christmas market as they adjust to difficult economic circumstances. All that coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is making his first trip outside the country since Russia attacked it on February 24th. He is en route to Washington, D.C. and will meet U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House later today and address U.S. Congress. While the visit is obviously of immense symbolic importance, the strategic implications are also significant. The U.S. has agreed, after months of pleading by Ukraine, to supply the Patriot Air Defense Missile System. Well, I'm joined in the studio with more on this by Alyona Hlivko, formerly a Ukrainian local MP, now a London-based political consultant, and Chris Chermak, Monocle's Washington correspondent. Um, Alyona, first of all, how does this feel to you as a Ukrainian? I mean, on the one hand, this is normal diplomatic behavior. Your president is going to the United States to meet their president. He's done that before, of course, with the previous uh, incumbent. But this is obviously going to be a huge, huge moment moment. He will be addressing the US Congress. He will absolutely have the world's ear. Wow. is is an emotion for the day for me today. Um, it's such a remarkable event and it's so reassuring and inspiring for me to see, actually, that we are finally having the first overseas and first foreign visit uh, over the last year that's been extremely difficult. Uh, we're also marking 300 days of war today. It's been almost 10 months and for these 300 days we were almost in such a highly mobilized, tense state, um, almost not able to exhale and relax and always keep going and keep looking what's happening uh, day in and day out every day, being there on the spot, kind of watching the situation. And the fact that the president can kind of withdraw himself very briefly to fly to the U.S., the country that's been a, a key ally to Ukraine on this path of defending ourselves and making that statement in the Congress and reinforcing our position and support ahead of a very tough winter and probably quite a problematic year ahead. That's very significant and quite remarkable and gives me loads of optimism ahead of Christmas. Uh, Chris, what is the risk versus reward calculation here for President Zelensky? Um, It's not confirmed, the logistics of this enterprise, but uh, on flight radar you can see that a US government jet did depart a small airport near the Ukrainian border with Poland uh, earlier today, which probably isn't a coincidence. 
Well, in terms of the risk, I mean, it was interesting, you know, senior administration administration officials briefed uh, yesterday uh, night uh, only on this on this potential visit for Zelensky. And they, of course, deferred to Ukraine for, you know, it is it is up to Zelensky to weigh the risk or not of making a trip abroad. But that said, in terms of why he chose to go to the U.S., I think. It's not it's not it's obviously symbolic the first time he is able to leave the country but the timing of it is quite key I think in mm. the United States at this moment for one thing we are right at the end of negotiations on a massive spending bill in Congress for next year that should include about 45 billion dollars in spending in aid for Ukraine you mentioned the Patriot missile battery that 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 President Biden is now agreeing to send to Ukraine as well that's really, I think, where when you say, what is the reward? This is the moment where Congress is deciding on spending um, ahead of the next Congress coming in. This is his chance to sort of reinforce the message to Americans, to, to Congress and ordinary Americans, why this is so important, why support for Ukraine needs to continue. And it comes at a time, if I'm perfectly honest, you know, I'm, I'm here this week, but mm. having been in D.C. the last few months, where you do feel like, Ukraine has perhaps fallen somewhat off the headlines. It hasn't been as much of a focus in the United States as perhaps it was earlier. So I think for that reason, too, this is a moment to sort of reinforce that, re-energize people in in the United States as well, that this is a war that matters, that this is something that the U.S. can help with as well. Leona, is that a calculation you think will have occurred to President Zelensky? We've talked about this before, that in these bizarre circumstances, uh, his previous career as a, a broadcaster and, and showman has actually been a positive advantage. He he understands, I think, something about keeping public attention. And I, I guess the comparison, which I know we've also made before, which I'm sure Ukraine wants to avoid, it is that it was only 20 years ago that there was a four-year-long siege of a capital city right in the middle of Europe, and everybody sort of tuned out. I think he definitely stays on top of communications, and mm. he understands how important they are. Communications at such time um, in person, having visited the White House and going to speak to the Congress ahead of such an important vote, I think is crucial. Uh, there is a concern in Kyiv that, you know, it was there since the elections have started in the U.S. It's been quite a tough time to corroborate that support and the cross-party support for Ukraine, most importantly. And we're seeing various reports of Republicans making all sorts of statements with regards to Ukraine that obviously the U.S. is facing tough times, as is any country in the world. And um, I keep reiterating this point that it's not only because of the war and the energy supply from Russia. It's uh, We also have to remember that the whole world just went through a pandemic mm. and the enormous social spending that we faced through pandemic, of course, resulted into inflation and the tough economic situation that we're facing now. So all of that amounted uh, to extremely difficult times for people across the globe. But President Zelensky making this effort um, may be risking his own security and eventually the, the course of the war in Ukraine, he needs to take that risk to go to the U.S., to speak to people personally, to make that appearance and to commit to the people of the United States that this fight is not just the fight for the Ukrainian people, it's the fight for democracy in Europe. As you rightly say, several years ago, no one really paid attention. But now is the time to actually fight back and 
put the world back on its track towards democracy. Uh, Chris, going back to what you were saying about the domestic political considerations, there will be a new Congress sworn in in January. It will be a Republican majority Congress. There will be in that Republican majority not a few, well... Putin shills, outright weirdos, uh, various headbangers who've tried to make a thing uh, out of the war in Ukraine and how it's something the United States should not be involved in. How much trouble can they cause Joe Biden as he attempts to maintain the US support for Ukraine? Well, this is the big question, Andrew. I mean, I think when, when you've looked at the midterm elections and in general, if you want to look at the politics being uh, against Ukraine, if you will, is not popular in the U.S. The U.S. does, most people in the U.S., the public, supports aid for Ukraine. And so you did not have very many members of Congress or those running for Congress who were sort of agitating against that. But as you say, you did have a small group of them. I think on the one hand, one can make too much of how big that group is, even within the Republican Party. They are small but very noisy. Exactly. Small but very noisy. But given that the House of Representatives in particular will be controlled by a very, very slim majority uh, Mm. by, by Republicans, Kevin McCarthy will become the Speaker of the House and he will have to lead this incredibly unruly coalition of Republicans in that House. If only five of them are agitating and willing to to hold aid for Ukraine hostage in some way to get either other things or investigations of Joe Biden underway, various things that could happen, that's where I think the danger comes. I, I would almost argue in that sense... This is perhaps a weird way to put it, but for Ukraine, I don't think there is almost as much of a worry. At the end of the day, aid for Ukraine will come. The question will almost be at what domestic political cost in terms of investigations, other things that would have to be attached to an aid spending bill in order to get those five to ten members of the Republican caucus to agree. Um, just a final thought, uh, Aliona, because we are barreling towards that time of year. This will obviously be a very different Christmas in Ukraine than the previous one, but in in the in the contacts you've had with your friends and family in different parts of Ukraine in the last couple of weeks, whether people are observing Christmas or Orthodox Christmas or both or indeed neither, um, what are the next couple of weeks, the alleged festive season, going to be like in Ukraine? So the Ukrainians have definitely gotten into the mode of celebrating two Christmases. Well, if, if, if they're on offer, why not? Why not? Why not indulge ourselves into something joyful and something that lifts our spirits? Um, Recently, on the 19th of December, we've discussed it with you before, Mm. Ukraine celebrated St. Nicholas Day. And I got a phone call from one of my girlfriends saying, guess what? I actually did get a present from St. Nicholas because we had electricity all day and I can even call you and we can chat about all sorts of things apart from war. So Ukrainians are definitely, they're enduring. It's it's quite a difficult time because it's testing their patience. Um, I hear from friends, friends that um, it's made them more resilient, more disciplined, uh, but definitely more determined to survive this time and to come out winners. And similarly with Christmas, everyone is still determined to celebrate with electricity or without, with paper doves on their Christmas trees instead of Christmas lights. But everyone is definitely in the mode to have some joyful time. Aliona Livko and Chris Chermak, thank you both for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Carlotta Rabello with the day's other headlines.
Thanks, Andrew. The Taliban have banned women from attending universities in Afghanistan with immediate effect. The mandate was announced on Tuesday and has sparked international condemnation from several countries, including the United States and Britain. Girls in Afghanistan have already been excluded from secondary schools since the Taliban returned to power last year. Peru has ordered the Mexican ambassador to leave within the next 72 hours. The decision comes after Mexico granted asylum to the family of ousted Peruvian president Pedro Castillo. The former leader was removed from office earlier this month after he tried to dissolve Congress and is currently being investigated on charges of rebellion and conspiracy. And Malaysia has been hit by some of the worst flooding in decades. More than 72,000 people have been forced to evacuate due to extreme torrential rains, and at least two people have died. Experts said that rapid urbanization and deforestation have made certain regions, including Kuala Lumpur, more vulnerable to severe floods. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Carlotta. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. And Argentina is today recovering from yesterday's national holiday declared in honour of their national team's victory in Sunday's World Cup final. So many people, four million by some estimates, turned out for the ritual open-top bus parade that it had to be called off. And the team instead were flown over the gathered hordes in a helicopter. Well, Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott joins us now from what ever remains standing of Buenos Aires. Um, Lucinda, how, how late did it go? I mean, into the night, Andrew. I mean, most people by midday. I mean, just to explain to listeners, this was meant to be an organised event. So unlike <laughs> the spontaneous celebrations on Sunday after the result where people, you know, gathered downtown in this sort of explosion of, of happiness, this was an open-top double-decker bus with the national team that the idea was would parade the city on Tuesday from the airport and it ended pretty disastrously although I imagine it it could have been a lot worse but the football association is now blaming the security forces for not properly preparing for this and a little like actually the funeral of Diego Maradona a few years ago where crowds you know in their millions turned up and in this case ground the bus to a halt Messi and his teammates were completely surrounded there were fans actually throwing themselves on top of the bus from bridges on high um, as it made its way to the center of town and honestly by midday yes they had to be helicoptered out and that meant that many people were very disappointed because they didn't get to see their heroes. They'd made this pilgrimage again for a second time this week, standing for hours in the hot sun. And and this morning, the papers are just full of sort of what went wrong, injuries and and possibly death. So the party is is definitely over and the hangover has begun here. (laughs) Aside from those logistical mishaps, I mean, what was the... I realise this is a silly question, even as I'm uttering it, but what was the general mood of the crowd? I mean, the general mood initially was, you know, very similar to that on Sunday. You know, people <laughs> uh, sort of live riding this wave. I mean, I think the whole idea particularly, I mean, they tracked the plane, the 21-hour, you know, journey from Doha. I mean, people had been tracking this and television commentators. And, and, and the crowds, you know, a lot of young people, I would say, more more sort of football fans. But on the road to the airport, the initial images from the airport were incredible. I mean, there were families lining up with barbecues um, and, and that was quite clear because it's a main highway the difficulty was is obviously when you're crossing in and over you know vast areas of the city and and so alberto fernandez i believe is the first ever head of state in the history of the tournament to not hold the cup on winning so if that doesn't reveal the sort of relationship 
between, you know, this government and, and, and the people. I don't know what does. Well, there is there a, a kind of hint of political subtext. Famously, in 1986, last time Argentina won the World Cup, uh, Diego Maradona you know, took the photo on the balcony at the presidential palace. Uh, Lionel Messi did not. No, they, they turned both Messi and his teammates and, and the association turned down this invitation from from the presidential palace, yes, to replicate this famous photo where he, Maradona famously kissed the trophy from, from that pink balcony of Evita Peron fame decades prior. And instead, as I say, they encouraged fans to return to the obelisk monument where people had gathered spontaneously on, on Sunday. But Argentina is very divided politically and also in sport with rival clubs. So this was a way, I think, to keep the peace um, and the nation united for a few hours more. And again, I, I think people respected the captain even more for that. I mean, it has to be said that the popularity of the left-wing president has fallen so far that he was actually advised not to travel to present the prize in person in Qatar. Um, so the fallout from what happened yesterday, we will obviously see play out. But I think public anger has been kind of brewing for months and... And, you know, now we'll see and, 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 and we'll have to keep an eye, obviously, on protests and things. But I think the decision by Messi um, was welcomed, actually. Well, on that thought, uh, let's look ahead a little bit. Once the uh, the jubilation subsides somewhat, what sort of year is Argentina in for in 2023? Well, Argentina will host presidential elections in October of next year. It's meant to be. We still don't know who the candidates will be. There's a primary race and it's very, very divisive at the minute. The ruling government is trailing the opposition by miles. In fact, some of the provincial governors um, that are of the of, of the other side of the centre right, um, they actually rebelled against this idea of having a national holiday yesterday, saying that it was ridiculous given how many public holidays we're about to have in the run up to Christmas. Um, but you know, the mood is difficult. Inflation is soaring, possibly past 100% in the year to December. So. You know, while this was a moment, the cup was a moment, one that will forever be remembered, the underlying issues and divisions and, and poverty, this is close to 40% in Argentina, shockingly, haven't gone away and won't subside, I think, in 2023. Lucinda Elliott, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Christmas markets are a vital part of the festive season in Vienna, but the past couple of years have not been easy on them, first because of the pandemic and now because of rising inflation and energy bills, all of which has forced market organisers to hike their prices, especially for food and drink. But will it spoil Christmas for the Viennese? Well, earlier, Monocle's Alexei Korolev met one market organiser in the Austrian capital who is trying to keep his customers happy. There's nothing like a steaming mug of glue vine at one of Vienna's world-famous Christmas markets to put you in the festive mood. But this year, some visitors are having to think twice before getting another drink. So we tried to rise the prices of the hot punch as little as possible. Of course, we had to rise them a little bit, especially due to the energy costs. But what we want is that everyone in Vienna 
will be able to come to this Christmas market to have some nice hours and a good time in this market, even those who do not have much money in their pockets. Michael Schmidt is one of the organizers of the Spittelberg Christmas Market in Vienna's 7th district. It started in a historic uh, surrounding, Spittelberg, which is more or less a baroque ensemble, small lanes, and the people who started that, they started with a few huts, and it grew from year to year, and now we are more or less with uh, about 120 huts. A long-time fixture in Vienna's festive calendar, it's been named by Falstaff magazine as the city's best Christmas market for the fourth time running. The punch mugs are the cheapest in Vienna as well, so we only ask for two euros per mug, which is unique in Vienna. All the others cost four or five euros because we think, okay, if you like this mug, you can carry it home and you have a nice mug for two euros. And it's gonna remind you of the Christmas market and it was a nice time at the Christmas market. There's people who, who like them, who collect them. Okay, yeah, they're welcome. And with the punch it would be like two euros for the mug and three euros for... No, no, the, the, it's 420 is the cheap punch. Oh, the, the kid's punch, the kid's punch is 290. Mm. A colleague told me that another another Christmas market area, so the cheapest punch would be 570. So there's a difference between 420 and 570. Plus the mug. Plus the mug, and the mug is a, is a four or five euro mug. So one so punch is 10 euros, yeah. Correct. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> correct, yeah. There's another problem too. There is an organized begging business. It is what it is. And there are groups of beggars, they come in, and try to grab the mugs. They try to grab the mugs because if one mug is f four euro or five euros, they try to grab them, of course. And so we thought, okay, if our mugs cost two euros and the other ones are four or five, where will the beggars go? They won't go where they get only two euros per mug. No, they won't gonna go where they get four or five euros per mug. Mug deposits and expensive punch may seem like silly things to complain about, given the wider context of the cost of living crisis. But Christmas markets are an important part of Vienna's economy. And as Christmas gets nearer, the authorities will be watching visitor numbers closely. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. Thank you, Alexei. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and finally on today's show, continuing with this week's excellent innovation of using The Briefing to remorselessly plug the current edition of The Foreign Desk. It is our special Christmas episode, and we have gone with a Finland theme, including interviews with Finland's ambassador to the UK in an actual sauna, one former president, and a special musical interlude from a choir of shouting men. It also includes, obviously, Monocle's resident Finn, Marcus Hippie and a survey of some of the fabulously wretched songs Finns mumble to each other from a safe distance at this time of year. I began by asking Marcus if he misses being in Finland at Christmas. 
I do. I, I, I often try to go there for Christmas. For me, I think I always feel like I need the snow. I need the Finnish Christmas tree that's been taken from our own forest and kind of spending time with the family. But London is a nice alternative as well. It's cosy in a different way. Now, when you go to Finland, Marcus, do you sing songs? I rarely sing songs. I no. think we had to do a fair bit of that back in the day when I was going to school when I was 11. Not anymore. I think that's good for everyone. Because what we did discover in our preparatory discussions for this segment is that there's a certain character, I think it's fair to say, to Finland's Christmas music. They're not like everybody else's Christmas carols, which tend to be sort of celebratory and upbeat. Lots of decking the halls, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. You people don't seem to go too much in for that. I know, it's true, and I wonder always what it tells about our culture, why we seem to be so unenthusiastic <laughs> or unhappy. We're happy in our own way in Finland when it's Christmas, <laughs> but as you will find out from this song soon, it's a bit of in a torturous way. Well, tee the first one up. So basically, what I'm doing now is almost like a global countdown. Fernando does sometimes in our competing mm-hmm. program. So I go through five Christmas songs that I think are great and reflect my country's culture okay. in a nice way. And And the first song is actually my personal favorite. This is Varpunen Jouluaamuna, or in English, Sparrow on a Christmas Morning. Let's have a listen. You have this little girl, little child who sees this bird outside and brings the bird a few seeds, a little food for it to eat on this cold Christmas morning. And when she's there, she realizes that actually that bird is her her younger brother who's passed away recently, comes to say hello to her from heaven. And when she gives her seeds to the bird, she hears the voice saying that her brother is going to get the seeds in heaven. That's jolly. And do you all gather round a fire after lunch and sing this with great gusto? No, for some reason, this is not one of those songs we sing out loud. As a matter of fact, the next song would be, I think we should have a listen to this. This is Hei ton tuukot hyppikä. Hei ton tuukot hyppikä, nyt on reu raikka in aika. Hei ton tuukot hyppikä, nyt on reu raikka in aika. Vain hetken kestä elämä. Ja sekin synkkä ja ikävä. Hei, You know, I've sung this song dozens or hundreds of times when I've been younger in Finland. The kids, they sound quite jolly, but they, they don't. Do. They may not understand what they're actually singing about. This is oh, something God. the lower male voice actually explains better in this track. What he sang was that life lasts for a short while only, and it's dark, and it's sad too. So therefore, now that it's Christmas, you just try to enjoy at least a little bit. This does seem quite a contrast, Marcus, not just with the general tone of the song, but its title, which translates, as I understand it, to Hey Gnome's Jump. <laughs> Don't ask. This is that- basically the Smurf song written by Sartre. But this is also Finland. Amazing joy combined with this excruciating feeling of pain and sorrow in the background. I think it's, in a funny way, a great example of what Finland stands for. All right. What do we have coming up Well, next? another Christmas favorite I have. For some reason, this hasn't been translated into English anywhere yet, but it's got potential for a global hit. This okay. is Konstan Joululaulu, Konstas Christmas song. Joulun, 
It's nice, but I am detecting a pattern emerging here. Would I be right in assuming that this is another Finnish Christmas song which is ultimately about how we're all going to die one day? Well, actually, in this song, someone's died already. So, so what we have in this song is a little boy, Gornsta, who is going to a cemetery and, <laughs> and, and he finds the right grave and that grave belongs to his mother. And in the song, when you listen to it for a few minutes in, you, you learn that when the kid is by that grave and lights a candle, he hears this voice from her mother who says that she will be always with him and he should continue his life. Marcus, at least once a year, you appear on one of our programs when the UN releases its latest happiness index, once again gloating that for the umpteenth year in a row, the Finns are apparently the happiest people on earth. So why are all your Christmas songs like this, Marcus? I think in order to be happy, you have to also understand the other side. And I think in a weird way, Finland may also be a little bit bipolar as a culture (laughs) and as a society. So if you're happy all the time, you won't appreciate it that much. But when you spend your Christmas listening to these songs and when the summer finally arrives and, and everyone is jolly, you kind of enjoy it more when you remember what the winter was like. Okay, well, coming up next, how many more bodies is this going to add to the count? Well, this one actually doesn't involve death on a human level. Well, that's it's, something. It's a song about a pig that is about to be slaughtered. <laughs> Let's have a listen. This is Sika. Sika. Se kuulan kallonsa. Sika. Sen setä teurasta. Sika. Ja setä verta juo. Sika. An actual big hit in Finland. At this point, Marcus, I'm barely surprised. I would like you to render some of those lyrics in English, if you would. So, Sika is a Finnish word for pig. And if I go mm-hmm. through some of the lyrics, pig, it takes a bullet in its head. Pig, nice man will slaughter it. Pig, and nice man will drink its blood. Pig, and it brings the Christmas spirit. Just want to pick up on a couple of lines there, Marcus. The nice man will slaughter it and the nice man will drink its blood. Does nice mean something different in Finnish? No, I think it's irony. I think you have to understand something <laughs> about this artist behind this song, Yui Zaleskinen, one of our greatest talents. He, he had a very influential, slightly indie career for decades. And he had this slightly sarcastic, humorous way of seeing things, and that's why we loved him in Finland. Okay, well, we have one more song in our Finnish Christmas countdown. Less death this time. Hooray. Just Just different in another way. So when I've been living abroad for almost 20 years, I've noticed that, as you know now as well, other countries do Christmas and Christmas music slightly differently. So I think this song explains a wider phenomenon of how Finland does things differently. This is a song you know as well. This is White Christmas. So let's have a listen to this version. So no actual death, just death metal. Just just death heavy metal. So obviously that's one of the reasons why I had to leave my home country because the music scene was so bad over there. I don't like heavy metal. And a phenomenally successful uh, Christmas concert tour takes place every December across the biggest cities of the country. Raskasta joulua heavy Christmas and that's where you can go and see some of the front class great heavy metal names performing these Christmas songs we love so much
Many thanks to Marcus Hippie. You can hear that complete episode, and why would you not want to after that, by tuning into the latest edition of The Foreign Desk at monocle.com forward slash radio. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle. Our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, midday UK. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>